Hey everyone, welcome to show 27 of Tune Talks podcast. I'm your host, Sandra, and today's guest is a little out of the norm. I usually interview animators and directors of animation, but I've known of Scott Stafford for many years now. I'm a huge fan of his work, and I've heard nothing but praise about him from friends that have worked with him. So I was a little bit intimidated. Scott has composed on Presto for Pixar, and he works now at Google Spotlight Stories. He's done Windy Day, Boogie Night, Pearl on Ice, and the recently released an absolutely stunning scenario. Scott is such an incredibly lovely, genuine person. I found this conversation deeply beneficial and really, really fun. I've no doubt that you'll feel the same way. And I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comment section if you feel this interview is helpful to you. Maybe I can branch out to other areas of the pipeline as well. Now, before we get going, I just want to give a huge thanks to my colleague here at Access Animation in Glasgow, Kier GreaterX, for his help with this one. It needed a little bit of sound editing to clean it up, and he'd done an amazing job. I asked him to clean up just a minute here and there, but he went through and done the whole thing. <laughs> so thank you so much, Kier. On we go now to our conversation about composing for animation. I guess we'll start off with talking about your earliest memory of when you fell in love with music. Um, well, let's see. I think it was a sort of a per- perfect trio of growing up in church where we had a, a, an amazing... Uh, choral director and orchestra uh, and uh, organist, and being literally like a, you know, the pipe organ is such an amazing mm. thing. It's 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 a it's a musical instrument that's also architecture, and you're literally surrounded by pipes and moving bellows, and that was something that got me interested in both like music technology and music at a very young age. Uh, Star Wars, I think I was. When that came out, and I, it was it was one of my literally one of my first memories, um, and uh, Bugs Bunny. So I would say John Williams, Carl Stalling, the composer from, of course, uh, Looney Tunes and early Disney, um, and yeah, pipe organs. Yeah. Lovely. Um, and so, how did you get into composing for animation? Um, let's see. Well, actually, the first real opportunity I had came from. Doug Sweetland. Um, he, I, I was in a band um, in the 90s and he came to a bunch of our shows and we struck up a friendship and we had, uh, it's something that Glenn Keane talks about when, our, when our, like the water, the, the, a river dives beneath the ground but sometimes it'll come back up. So he, he, we talked about him uh, animating a music video for us and this was before, this was very early in Pixar's history. And it was well before I realized that he was a like certified genius, um, you know. Because when you're introduced to someone who's like a, a fan of your band, and then he pitched this idea that just absolutely blew my socks off. I couldn't believe what a creative person, you know. And then of course I met more people that knew him, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's Doug Sweetland." So that never came to fruition. But years later, he called me up when he was directing his first uh, theatrical short called Presto. Um, and you know we had bonded so much over music, and and he knew of my love of music of animation, and, and how I'm kind of like, a, for lack of a better word, I'm sort of a method composer in the sense that I like to disappear um, and just completely take on something else. So Presto was this incredible like research pro- project and labor of love over a long period of time that was our first. Um, collaboration together and my first real introduction to actually working in animation which was an amazing experience and then of course Doug 
brought me in again to the very first Spotlight story, Windy Day, um, in December of 2012, which was just another sort of career and, and paradigm-altering yeah. experience. <laughs> and what's the difference between you working on Windy Day and working on scenarios and scenarios so musically important? Um, that's an interesting question. So Windy Day, by virtue of it, there not being any dialogue, um, was actually very the music was sort of front and center in that and that was the the moment where you know we were looking at something that we wanted to be a film but looking at the techniques and technology that is more common to video games where you have elastic time and interactivity and you have to have music that um, responds to any given situation and I think we were being um, Jan Pink of the director, especially, and our, and our creative director at Spotlight Stories, was amazing at really kind of um, pioneering a lot of these, a lot, you know, a lot of the way people talk about storytelling in VR and mobile 360, stuff that he kind of figured out. Out of, I mean, that's my opinion, but yeah. it's something that he, he, a lot of what people talk about now is sort of stuff that he was discovering back in 2012 with this medium. And I remember the first conversations about how you really need to not penalize any wrong behavior on part of the audience. If they want to look over here while you want them to look over there, that's just how it has to be. And the music has to fit accordingly. I think if we made any mistakes, it was being a little too generous of like, you know, having to account for every possible yeah. thing that people would do. Of course, you just can't do that. <laughs> but the music in, in Windy Day was very um, uh, complicated because it needed to sound very carefree, very lackadaisical, very organic, yeah. not like technical and not like, you know, quantized beat mapped loops. Yeah. It needed to sound like a jazz band and it needed to say... Um, it's a beautiful day in this incredible designed forest that John Klassen designs. The incredible, with this incredible animation. Um, it's a beautiful day in this beautiful forest. What could possibly go wrong? So that's what the music had to say. But under the hood, what it, what was what it was doing was very complex. And so that was that was the uh, trick. And so scenario is sort of in some ways the opposite because it's reflecting everything that. I've learned from working on 10 other, or 12 yeah. other VR projects and really trying to say like, okay, this is, th these are some things that you can do in VR and only in VR um, with music and sound. Um, and this is also where I think things might be going. Mm. So, so what's the biggest difference for you between working in pitch film and working in VR? It's a big shift. So on the one hand, nothing is new. These are things that people, like, I, I think the conversations in the very first sort of Disney ride where people are thinking about managing attention and where people, you have them on this story track and where do they look. I think a lot of these questions have been asked, a lot of these questions have been asked in film. Um, on the other hand, there are some things that really are new and are, and are deeply challenging to the storyteller and composer because you're giving up two of the principal tools that a director has, which is the camera, um, and in some ways the edit, and the control of timing. I, I remember trying to describe what was so awkward about doing an emotional build mm -hmm. with elastic time. 
because in in a film a composer is going to create some type of emotional build yeah. and there probably will be several of them and there will probably be one big one and the timing of that build it's like if it's a couple seconds shorter it's like you don't get there yeah. if it's a couple seconds longer you've overdone it the 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 exactitude that people want to have the editor the composer the director in just like what is just right is something that you lose complete control of in VR if you're using um, elastic time um, the other thing is that in VR um, it does all of the things that you do this is in terms of sound itself um, sound is very important to picture in film and TV and other formats, but in VR it has some um, additional responsibilities. The three of the biggest challenges in VR are um, the, the audience is often um, disoriented. Um, there is a lot of dizziness and imbalance that can happen. Um, and there's also an anxiety of missing something. Am I looking in the right place? Am I going to miss something? Sound, if you're doing it right in VR, can provide a sense of balance. You know, our hearing and our sense of balance are biologically linked. So if you're spatializing things improperly, and if all of the sound is head tracking, and you go like this and the sound goes like that with you, it's, it's instantaneously dizzying. But if you have everything properly spatialized and you give people like a sonic horizon um, that they can balance themselves with, it fixes a lot of those problems. Um, you can only see 10 to 20% of the world at any given time, depending on your field of view, um, but you can hear 100% of it. So sound is responsible for telling the entire story that's off screen, yeah. which is most of it. <laughs> um, and if you look away, you can still hear part of the story. So it, 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 it addresses that anxiety. You can still feel like you're experiencing the story. If you know, oh, over there is the sound of this car turning on. Yeah. You don't have to see it. You just know, and it becomes part of the story. Yeah. So that's some, of the that's some of the things that in VR, especially when you put on the mask and you're, you're embodied in that world, you rely a lot more. Your brain goes into a different mode than if you're in a theater and you're detached and you're there. Yeah. Whereas if you're in it, you start relying a lot more on your hearing as yeah. you as you would in the in the real world. Yeah, definitely. So. I found that too. When I'm looking down and you can't see the ground, and you're like, oh, uh, but somehow the sound just okay, okay, okay. It, it can be reassuring. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, what at what point do you like to get involved in I guess in, in film? Because I suppose in VR you're there right from the start, but in film you not. Can, yeah. Well, I've I have been, which has been uh, an incredible opportunity. I think. Any composer or sound designer wants to be involved as, as soon as possible. Uh, it's a lot more work, and there's a lot more failure early on, and there's a lot more sort of shots in the dark, and it relies a lot. I would say the first 80% of a production is all about sort of blind faith and trust. Um, and then when you start to really see things, and you start to put music in against picture, and you start putting sound against picture, you can rely less on trust and more on iteration, feedback and direction and all that stuff. So it is, it's amazing in film or in, in VR to, to be involved as, as early as possible. But like I said, it can also be difficult because you don't really know, especially in VR, you don't really know how it's going to feel when you're in a space. There's this moment on every project I've worked on um, where everything is working in 2D 
and you're looking at you know QuickTime movies that you've gotten in an email attachment, and you're using your you know familiar tools like we use Pro Tools, like the way an animator in CG uses Maya. Everything's working great, and then you put on the set and the headphones, and you're in that space, and you're you just realize, oh, this is this isn't right at all, and we're still creating the tools that will make that really easy one day. But right now, it's like this two-part process where it's like this is how it is while we're working in the creative process and then sometimes months later when we all see it come together it's like this discovery of like oh shit um, and that, that happens on every project and it's because it's, it's when you're working on a film you can literally create a small theater environment yeah. so you're, you're creating in a way in the environment where audience will see it you have a big screen you have theatrical sound, you you know you can just it's it's a very small leap, but in VR right now it's just it's way too big. It's a it's a it's a big gap that I think people are gonna that's uh, that's gonna become more narrow in the future. And um, somebody asked me to ask you: Is uh, temp music evil? <laughs> um, I think I don't know how common my uh, perspective is on this. Um, I actually don't think so. I, I definitely relate with editors and directors who need and animators who want to compose to music and sometimes it's just too soon. Um, a composer is oftentimes like the, the best music will happen when they see the final cut and they can connect point A to B versus sort of you know composing blind and sending people things early. So I, I find temp music to be um, a necessary evil. Uh, of course, all the things that could happen with it is with anything else. There's, you know, people are using references, and then you you develop an emotional attachment to it. Yeah. There's this phenomenon that is talked about a lot in um, advertising, which is borrowed interest, where it's not just the quality of the music you're listening to, but the fact that your film sounds like Star Wars yeah. or Amelie or these, you know, films that carry with it so much interest, and then. You'll never, as a composer, you'll never be able to replace that. Yeah. Um, at least not legally. Uh, so, but at the same time, it's it's part of the process, and I, I can't imagine just it going away. Yeah. So I just, uh, you know, learn to love it. <laughs> and you were talking earlier about you know how music creates emotion. Mm-hmm. And I feel like music and film is like a puppeteer, and it's mm-hmm. just making you feel things, whether you want to or not. And this is a very naive question, but how do you do that? It's like when I'm listening, when I was watching Scenaria, and the music nearly made me cry. And it was, you know, the visuals were gorgeous, but I think it was the music that was making me really emotional. I think if I was to boil it down, and this is oversimplifying, but uh, to me, at least in Scenaria, the visuals are the wow, and the music is the emotion. And the sound is the information it's like telling you this is where you are and this is what you're looking at and it's breathing and it's alive um so it's like sound gives it breath and space and dimension and and sells it as being real the music does have a lot you know most of the carry a lot of the emotional weight of the thing and the and the visuals are just like wow you know that's i i really wanted to have that sort of childlike i you know i that's that's how i felt whenever i would get art from chromosphere or kevin dart um, there was just this childlike, you know, because I would throw these ridiculous ideas at him. I would just, you know, 
sort of spew all of these like unrelated is he listening does he understand am I making any sense and then we'd get something back where he would just nail it and do stuff that I would never think of and you know the their the ability so I had this you know idea that like what if there was like a sort of a, a fundamental shape and in this case it's the teardrop um, what if like everything was made of those and Kevin just took it you know and his team took it so much further and it and it's just so so beautiful but so how do you do it I don't think film composers are necessarily masters of of human emotion I think you have to be aware of it fortunately we're we can compose for ourselves like we're our own audience and we have wives and kids that we can play things to and husbands and and so on um, to see if they're having a reaction that's it's it's incredibly hard um, because you you can't do too little and you can't do too much and um, silence is so incredibly important um, in fact just so you know what you saw was a preview we're still working on the sound in the mix and it's always you, it becomes more subtractive as you get closer and closer yeah. to the perfect thing and right now I'm still finding things to sort of peel away so you become aware of the really um, um, important moments so, so that's what a lot of it is is you just start throwing things at the wall um, finding stuff that resonates um, and then getting rid of everything else until you're really boiled down to like what, what needs to be there um, so Another thing that you do is you think in terms of uh, like chapters, because you know animators and the entire process um, in in VR is it's very um, you know there are these things called states where you have clips and they all have these boundaries and you go from this to that and there are these cuts in between them that are sort of binary you're in this state and then you're in the next but music and sound is in many ways the only element that its one job is to cross through those um, and that is a technical challenge in terms of implementation but it's a creative one as well where you want to like for me scenario is, is in three chapters you have the first chapter where you're underwater and you go from these unicellular teardrop sort of creatures um, to, I think they're more unicellular but it's meant to be ambiguous like that's kind of the whole point of scenario is the, is the the art is, the visual art is meant to evoke and suggest, whereas the sound is meant to answer. And so, in my mind, it was like, and I think in Kevin's, it's like this unicellular creature. They then become these sort of jellyfish, and then fish, and then all of a sudden, you you come out into the air as frogs. So that's the first chapter, going from below to above. And then Kevin had this idea of they're literally increasing in elevation as they go. So it's frogs to snakes to squirrels that climb trees to lemurs that go even higher up them to uh, bats to birds. And then that's the second chapter. And then they crash back down into the, into the water to become seals and then hump, humpback whales. Um, so the music there, in addition to sort of providing the emotion is to kind of chapterize those where you have you know because you need to have that sense of something starting and then like you know a sentence yeah. structure yeah. where you have some commas and a period and, um, so it's sort of in three sentences and so the music's um, job is to underscore that mm -hmm.
catch up with myself. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Um, can you talk us a little through your process and if you prefer to work with live orchestra or true digital? Um, whenever humanly possible. <laughs> um, I feel very strongly, as I think a lot of composers feel, um, that uh, working with live musicians is not just getting a better sounding instrument than you would get from a virtual instrument or sample library. You're getting um, additional human perspective. And literally the sound of, I, I'm a big fan of, well, of course, big orchestra sounds is, is what I grew up on. Yeah. But um, I'm a big fan of, of chamber ensembles where, um, like in the music of duet and the music of uh, scenario, I work with uh, these incredible string players and someone who's become a, a good friend is Evan Price, who's just one of the most talented people you can imagine. He also played fiddle on Windy Day, which is this great sort of gypsy jazz, but he can cross over into classical. And, and when you get people together where you, you feel them breathing together um, and you feel them interpreting the music and adding another perspective, it's something that will never be replaced. The only exception is when you want to tweak what they're doing and turn it backwards and do something experimental. And I'm also a huge fan of synthesizers and that's that they're their own instrument. So I would say whenever humanly possible, working with um, live players and live singers is something that is really important to me and important to the guys in, in my um, music and sound production company, Pollen Music Group. We've always put a big emphasis on like you know JJ is one of my partners he has this incredible studio in Noe Valley in San Francisco where it's just this like playground um, and a great place to record an album and that moment when you just get some people in there and see what happens is like to me it's like half the magic. So I was told that you do own a group in San Francisco, a studio, or there's some kind of connection there. Can you talk about that? And also as Mark Oftedal was saying that we should talk about Cambodia. Yeah sure. So uh, back in 2010, um, I started uh, Pollen Music Group. Um, we were uh, musicians, composers, songwriters, music producers. I wanted to create a, a collective at first just to go after commercial work. We all had, you know, our passions, um, you know, writing songs, going on tour, creating music albums, scoring films for me. Um, but we wanted to create sort of a, a collective that was just going to go out there and get the work that actually supports yeah. our livelihood. And that's how it started. But what it's become is, you know, one of the, Pollen has been one of the, you know, early pioneers in mobile 360 mm -hmm. and VR. And we've worked on um, dozens of, of VR projects. Um, and... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun project when you have a collective, you have a team. And on some projects, one of them is sort of the, it, the, 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 uh, the, sort of the face of the project and sort of the, the creative director of it. And everyone else just kind of forms a support structure around that. Um, and we do it very freely, between, you know, from project to project. So that's been really fun for me. Um, in terms of uh, the work in Cambodia, this goes back to 2001, um, shortly after 9-11 uh, actually, there was this moment where international travel was, uh, it just 
incredibly meaningful, I think, for a lot of Americans and very charged and kind of an intense experience. Um, it was at a time where I had been, um, you know, in, in rock bands and there's that, it's really fun, it's, but it's very fun and irresponsible, but you're also, you're self-promoting a lot. And I took a break from that and visited Cambodia with my family. And while I was there, met this uh, musician who uh, played an instrument called the Saidu, which is a one-stringed instrument that um, has a, a single string and a gourd as the resonator, and they cup it against their heart and open it up back and forth. And it, it was a captivating sound. And I found out that he was one of three people that still play the instrument because of the cultural destruction that took place during the 70s and 80s, where a thousand-year-old music culture was like on its uh, on life support. And I thought that was just so incredible. And I realized that by virtue of being in a band and getting people to your shows and selling merchandise and all that stuff, I actually realized I, I might be able to help. Um, and so I started a studio um, with a lot of support from a, an organization called Cambo Cambodian Living Arts and uh, Peter Gabriel. Um, started a, uh, an archival recording studio in Phnom Penh that grew to support a lot of really interesting projects, including a um, shadow puppet rock opera. Oh my god! <laughs> Uh, that premiered in Phnom Penh, I think, in 2009. Where I was the musical director of that, where you know you had professionals from Broadway and the Paris Opera, and then a lot of local musicians and singers and actors. And it was just this insane um, event that took place over about a year. Um, so it was, it, to me, that was about realizing. Um, that a I could be useful in the world um, and be like you know take part in like this cultural rebirth um, that has been um, you know a, a very emotional and fun and exciting experience. Oh well, that's lovely, Mark, you are an exemplary person. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, he is. So what was the most challenging experience of your career so far? Um, well, I will say that um, VR technology came to NSC before air conditioning. Um, and the lack of air conditioning in NSC has been a little bit challenging. Yes, that's true. But I think on a more creative um, level, <laughs> most challenging... Well, I'd say, okay, there's two different kinds of challenges. There's the, there's the challenge that sucks, which is the long, grueling periods where you're just, like, working on a diaper commercial. If you're, if you're lucky... Um, and just holding out and being just available for that one moment where someone gives you a call and maybe something will happen. Just that over and over and over is really hard. Um, so if I could just take this opportunity to reach out to any composers out there that are struggling, like keep at it. If I can do it, you can too. Believe in yourself. Don't give up on the dream. Then there's the cool kind of challenge, which is like the presto and the windy day. I think those are the two. Um, where with Presto, you were using older, very complex compositional techniques that Carl Stalling used to do. You know, well, sure. So 
a lot of people believe that the um, the click track um, was uh, invented for um, early Disney and uh, Looney Tunes, where you had you know there was this necessity to synchronize animation and music, uh, very like literally in the first films that had sound at all. Um, Skeleton Dance is a classic example where, like, they did one of the hardest things you can do, like on episode one of the Silly Symphonies, yeah. where you know you have characters that are dancing to the animation and, and, and to the music, and it's um, it's all perfectly synchronized. So that was a huge technical challenge. Um, so a lot of composition over the years has moved very far away from that, where music is more emotional and, it, and it, it, it's more minimal and it traces much longer arcs and there's a lot more repetition where you can just sort of have a figure that just plays and continues over a long period of time and you're not concerned with a sort of moment-to-moment, -moment, you know, not every blink has a musical yeah. analogy, yeah. you know, blink, blink, you know. There's very little of that, and so being able to do that, where it also isn't, you know, that knowing that they are not animating to it, so that, the, you know, the music, there's something like, I think there were like 200 tempo changes in five minutes or six minutes. Um, we had to split things up into all these different, just to get it playable. I mean, it's a live orchestra. Um, so that was a huge challenge, and and doing it on, you know, because the, a Pixar theatrical short is really held to the same standards as their features. And so it was a, you know, it was, it was jumping um, off of a very tall cliff into very deep, dark waters. Um, and, you know, thankfully it all worked out. And it was something that I'm still, you know, really proud of. Um, so yeah, just a, yeah, I would say, I would say Presto is the big one. Yeah. I'm sure that's probably the most fun project as well. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> honestly, geez. I mean, I've been really, really lucky. I mean, I since working with Spotlight Stories, being able to work with Jan Pinkova, mm, yeah. Mark Oftedal, Doug Sweetland, Glenn Keane, uh, Shannon Tyndall, um, who is the original creator of um, Kubo and yeah. the funniest person I've ever met and, and a creative genius. Uh, Patrick Osborne, um, Ardman, uh, I mean, and and now Jorge Gutierrez. It's I, I honestly can't say that Presto was the funnest. I, I I think they I've had a pretty amazing couple of years of working with some amazing people and having a lot of fun. So yeah, very lucky. Um, so do you ever feel burnt out, or maybe at some point where ideas don't come to you? Yeah. Fortunately, I work in sound as well. Sound is exactly as challenging as music, um, but it's less susceptible to writer's block. You know, you can just get in and start and keep going um, and get better and better. And of course, you have moments of inspiration, and but you can kind of get into the craft of it, whereas musical inspiration can leave you for weeks at a time when you cannot afford that. And... Yeah, it's it actually some of the work that I did in, in commercials was actually the best experience I've ever had because it's that thing where you just have to turn it on. You're like, I need to have an idea right now, and I need and I need it to be done in 24 hours. 
So how do you do that when you're burnt out? <laughs> so I do think I learned a lot from working on commercials where you just, you have to turn it on and you get better at it. And you're, you, you get all of the, you know, the first 50 things you write are going to yeah. suck and you have to just get through that. Um, so I think that there is a, I think there are some creative techniques of painting with a really, you know, broad stroke, um, um, learning how to listen to what you're doing while you're doing it, which is actually really hard. Um, it's, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's very similar to like character design, um, where you're, of course you're looking at it, but you need to step away and it's like, what's really coming through here and what can I get rid of? So there are some techniques of just um, doing something 10,000 times, you know, that you just get better at it. But yeah, writer's block is, is really tough and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I, I would say it's like a daily challenge, you know, do I have it today or not, you know? Yeah. Do you have any tips and tricks for um, musicians who want to tell their story through music? Um, well, Sonari is the first time I've told my own story, um, other than you know, being a songwriter back in the day. But as a film composer, the wonderful thing is you're probably working with someone who's telling the story for you. And so it's actually about getting into their head, the head of the director, of the writer, and to get into the head of the editor, who is, you know, the, the editor and the composer, I think, is a, is a really important relationship. So I guess, like, the first thing I would say to any composer working on a project is if there's an editor, like, get with them, spend some time with them, because the editors are often in the room with the director and they're throwing bits of temp music in there, and they've just absorbed so much of the thoughts of a director over a long period of time that they have a really great perspective that can help augment conversations you have with the director, which, of course, the only person that really matters is the, is the director. But, um, but an editor also uses similar tools, you know, non-linear editing systems that are very similar between video editing and, and music. So that would be that would be one, and the other is, I'm a big fan of using limited tool sets because you can get um, bogged down with all of the options. You, I mean, you can literally have 256 tracks, and you can have the sound of 17 orchestras playing with 38 synthesizers and 17 choruses, and you can you can edit it infinitely. Um, which is an impossible situation. Like, you, there's nothing, no, no good music will result from that. And so I'm a big fan of keeping yourself honest. I actually, some people will be embarrassed on my behalf, but I don't need you to feel that way. People, listeners out there, I don't care. Um, I sometimes use a, a program called GarageBand, which literally is free on every Apple, and it's, it's incredibly just dead simple. Um, there are very few options. They sound okay. But sometimes I start an idea just at the piano, at the guitar, and using GarageBand. Because if I can do something really quickly and it can actually be good, then later during you know editing phases and realization phases, you can start to throw all kinds of lipstick on the pig. But if you know, so I, I'm a big fan of keeping sketches very simple, using piano, guitar, using very simple tools at first that kind of keep you honest. Um, because, like I said, if you if you hurl yourself with every option open, 
um, you can get just stuck making a bad idea sound really good. That's generally good advice, creativity. I think it's. I think almost everything I could possibly say about music can also be said about animation, <laughs> yeah. design. Yeah. yeah. So, How are you for time? We've only maybe got three questions. Fine. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, if you could pick one thing that you know now that you could know at the beginning of your career, what would it be? Uh, let's see. You can edit out the silence, right? <laughs> I, I want to give a good... <laughs> I need to go back, because first of all, I wouldn't listen. <laughs> No, oh, like back then. if I this sounds like something Carl Pilkington would say. Um, if I was to go back and talk to myself, I wouldn't listen. Um, but I think it's true. So what would I actually listen to? Um, there's what I would tell myself, and what would I actually hear? I'm totally overthinking. <laughs> I would say Mary Monica Stafford, my wife. I would say it's worth it. There's a period where you have to say yes to everything. Of course, there's the moment where that every artist dreams of, of like that moment where you can turn things away and say no. That's, of course, what everyone wants. But there's the say yes to everything, and I actually think it's really important to do that. It sucks. It's a lot of work. But I think what I would say is say yes to everything, show up to everything. Um, uh, uh, spend as much time as possible with the director and animator on an animation project. Spend as much time as possible. Don't be shy. Get yourself into the room. Um, get yourself a seat at the table, even if you're not totally, you know, meant to be there. Um, don't be afraid of. Everyone thinks they're a fraud deep down. Um, be as fraudulent as you possibly can. And yeah, continue to say yes to everything until you literally don't have to. And I'm not sure if I'm there yet, um, but it's just such a good thing to to go through that process and, and to take everything on and do as, as much as you possibly can because it really early on it really is as much about quantity as quality. You just you just have to keep going at it. Um, so there was a capsule that NASA was going to send off into space. I think about this all the time, but keep going. <laughs> and this is like an example of music here on Earth. For you, what piece of music would you put in? Oh my goodness, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the golden record going out on the Viking 3. Where would it go? What would be on it? I am going to say... They did a really good job on, on the one that's already out there, actually. They have some incredible blues. They have Bach. They have Beethoven. They have, you know, Alan Lomax recordings of folk songs. I think what I would add to it would be... Uh, okay, so there's pieces of music, but there's also this thing that I think most people don't really realize, is that um, rhythm, pitch, and harmony are all the same thing. Um, so I think a lot about, like, what what would I do if I was speaking to a higher intelligence? How would I teach them about music? Because they're going to hear things totally differently. But in terms of what really encapsulates what we as, as composers and songwriters and musicians are doing, you could literally just show people how a simple pattern where you're uh, two against one, bump, 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 bump. So keep speeding that up and that turns into an octave. 
uh, take a pattern of two, a polyrhythm of two against three. That turns into a perfect fifth interval. Three against four. Take that and speed it up, and it turns into a perfect fourth. And so on and so on, to, to just understand that what we really love are these sort of interlocking patterns and how the complexity of um, West African or Indonesian polyrhythms and the most complicated, you know, Bach fugue, they're basically looking at just, they're doing the same types of things, just looking at different places along the frequency of things. Um, and to me, that was sort of a, encapsulate everything. But of course, the alien would just be sitting there like, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Um, I'm a big fan of um, a, compo uh, a composer named Michaud. I would put his... Um, there's, a, there's a song by Michaud um, called uh, Rosalie that I think is incredibly beautiful that nobody knows and they should. I'm a huge fan of Craftwork and a Japanese noise band called The Boredoms. So maybe just those three things. <laughs> Synthesizer music, controlled chaos, and this incredible burst of creativity that took place around the time of the Black Plague that was just, where it was like the greatest poet of his time and the greatest composer of his time. That's never happened since. So yeah, those three things. And what to you is the secret of music? Uh, that there is none, that there is, there's, there's no, music doesn't have the responsibility of doing anything that it doesn't want to do. So there, you know, if you, someone is telling you that, that music has to be political, they're right and they're wrong. If music has to be emotional, they're right and they're wrong. Um, that music is, music is math, they're right and they're wrong. You know, it's, uh, music can be so many things um, they can it can succeed and fail in every way that like language can um, uh, so the you know the more opinionated I've become about music uh, the less opinions I have <laughs> if that makes any sense um, and one last question what is the greatest piece of advice anybody ever gave you and it was from hmm <sighs> I don't know can I email you? <laughs> I honestly can't think of anything. I've gotten some really good advice, but like I said I, earlier, I didn't. I never listened. I wonder if people ever do. Like, do people actually do that? Do they get like? Do, do people? Does people give and receive great advice and be like, hmm, I'm going to listen to that and do that? Does that happen? I do. Mark Oftedal is always giving me advice. Um, I go and okay. Well, Mark it and yeah. Of course, but if they tell you to do something, you just do it, right? <laughs> yes. Whether or not, it's like okay, I'll just jam. Um, so I, I do get good advice. I don't know if they necessarily say sit you down and say here, listen to me. Yeah. But it's to me. I've I can tell you the people that I've gotten the best advice from. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can distill it to one thing they ever said. <laughs> I would say that I've gotten a lot of just excellent creative advice in terms of where there's an elastic time interactivity, 360 is involved. The advice I've gotten from Jan Pinkova is irreplaceable. Um, he, he unlocked a lot of the, the secrets of that stuff for me. Um, and of course on every show, keeping things simple, I, you know, the director is the advisor. I just, I'm sorry, I just can't think of any 
one thing that that's okay snippet of wisdom Thanks so much for taking the time out. You bet. I, I really appreciate it. Oh my God, my mind is expanding. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much.